That is a wonderful thought and a convicting thought, right? <coughs> Author of that, words of that song, is not saying that we can in any way match God's blessings in our life. That would be impossible. But what ought to come is an overflowing of our gratitude for the blessings that God has given and all that Jesus in particular has done for us to want to serve him and give of ourselves, right? Every time, and we all struggle with this sooner or later, but every time we find ourselves uh, reluctant or slow, or maybe we find ourselves in in a pattern of um, reluctance to serve God as faithfully as we should, Folks, we have not. That shows, that is evidence of a lack of reflection on all that Jesus has done for us. Because when we reflect on all that, we it motivates us and enables us to serve him more effectively. But difficult things happen and trials come and distractions come. And we can be tempted to question God's goodness or maybe even his character. Really, with Habakkuk here, you can turn to Habakkuk chapter 2. We have a large portion that we're going to try to make our way through. And it's hard. We've been actually taking smaller portions of this book to carefully examine. Um, There is a lot that I'd like to take time to examine in this passage in more detail. But we're going to do more of a high fly through it. the basic idea in all of these things are, are very is very understandable. If you have questions about maybe a particular word or something, we can talk afterwards. You know I would love to do that. But really, this passage that we're looking at today ought to be studied together. It's not really advisable to divide it up. And it is God's second response to Habakkuk. And he's going to continue that second response. Remember the first part. Is, and let's look at that, chapter 2, verses 4 through 5. He, he gives Habakkuk a commandment to write what he's going to tell him really clearly so that even somebody running by or today driving by, like billboard signs, can get clarity, can understand. This is important, Habakkuk. And he says, this is what happens to the prideful, arrogant enemy that worships itself rather than me, that I am using as a tool against my own people for correction. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. That means that it is not going to lead him in a right way. And then contrast that, but the righteous shall live by his faith. That is the overarching description of the righteous one, the faithful servant of God, is that he trusts His dependence is fully in God. And the other, that trusting in himself, he will not last. He's actually deceiving himself. Verse 5, moreover, wine, you could say wine, but also the success of the enemy's pursuits is a traitor. It makes him think that he's on top of the world. He's not going to be there forever. It's going to, in his arrogance, are the seeds of his failure and his punishment. An arrogant man who is never at rest, his greed is as wide as the grave as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Remember that concept of 
the evil, making collections of all the nations of the world. God has enabled them power to be able to have dominion over every nation, including God's own people, Judah. And that is what is so disturbing to Habakkuk. What, what was Habakkuk's initial concern? The evil, the wickedness among God's people, among the righteous. And he wants God to deal with them. But when God lets him know how he's going to deal with them by bringing, deal with the wicked, by bringing the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, this cruel, awful nation that laugh and mock at all authority, that will have success in everything that they do, that will have no past compassion or pity, then Habakkuk has a greater question. And he wants assurance of the holy character of God. God, how can you allow such wickedness and arrogance to be the correction rod of your people? Lord, I know your character, and that doesn't sync with what I know. And so we really have a back to questioning, Lord, I know things about you, and I know them well. And I'm concerned. How does this mess with your holiness? Now, is it wrong for Habakkuk to question God's character? Well, yes, he should trust but folks, let's be honest, sooner or later, we have that tendency. Do you remember the man that Jesus said was the greatest man that ever lived outside of Christ? John the Baptist. Remember what he did at the end of his life? He sent some messengers over to Jesus and said, are you the one? Because he started getting a little nervous. Folks, it's, it's one of our temptations and tendencies to test even those that are veteran um, followers, faithful saints, to in certain situations, when things don't sync with what we know of God, the question is character even sometimes. But in this passage, God is going to give Habakkuk wonderful reassurance that he is still in control, that he is still holy, and he always will be. Grand reassurance in this passage. The arrogant will not permanently rule the day. God is superior to them all, and that will one day be revealed to the whole world. Don't you worry, Habakkuk. Yes, these, this evil nation is going to have dominion for a while, but I'm in control of that, and it won't be forever. Because you're right, I am holy, I am just, and I will deal with wickedness. You can count on that. But it's in due course. And one day, the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of my power and glory, God's power and glory. The title today, The Earth Will Know the Lord. And we're just going to read in the middle here because to read the whole passage twice would take a little while. But in the middle here, 12 through 14, is the highlight and, and the most important thing to note about God's character. Woe to him who builds a town of blood and founds a city on iniquity or with, uh, on crime. Behold, it is not from is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? Note verse 14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And notice verse 20 as well. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Father. Let us be encouraged, as certainly Habakkuk was, as we know by his response in chapter 3, by the fact that you truly are trustworthy and what we know about your character. Lord, we're weak. 
we are tempted and sometimes we do doubt, just like Habakkuk and John the Baptist and others. But that your reminders in your word that you are who you say you are, that you are the Holy One, but you are sovereignly in control of all things. And even the wicked are merely your tools to accomplish your purposes. And all of this works together and you are working toward in your plan a grand finale that will be beyond anything we've ever seen. And in that, the world will acknowledge your glory and will bow the knee and worship you. And Father, we, we desire and we seek that day. Help us in the meantime to, as Habakkuk says, to wait, to, to abide, to constantly abide in you. And proclaim your glory to a world that denies and rejects it. Provide them opportunity to bow the knee now before they have to in submission and in judgment in the future. Let us be encouraged and um, reminded of the truths of who you are. That you will deal with all wickedness. And judgment is coming in your time. Help us to be patient. This we ask in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. The earth will know the Lord, folks. And God will point out the enemy. And of course, you know, in the immediate context, the enemy here is the Babylonians, the Chaldeans. But there is a general, broader context that God is giving Habakkuk. Um, because it's not just the Babylonians. But God is saying, no matter what enemy there is against me, this is what's going to happen to them, Habakkuk. You remember this. And the whole world will know that I am superior. I will point out the sins of these wicked nations who worship themselves and who are arrogant. And first of all, the earth will know God's plans for his for the greedy enemies, the greedy foe. God will deal very specifically now, God gets specific with their extortion tactics. That means those that would take from others. What, uh, and, and take what they need in a cruel in a way without paying them back. God says that these nations that will do that will eventually be dealt with. So verse 6, shall not all these take up their taunt against him? Shall not, and here he's, um, God is referring to himself and those victims of these proud nations of the Babylonians he says, all of these will one day taunt this wicked enemy, and they will scoff in riddles for him. God and his people, as described here, will actually ridicule this enemy one day for their foolishness and delusions of superiority. Um, scoffing has the idea of mocking someone's foolishness. Riddles has the idea of um, providing someone that says that they're supposedly intelligent and smart with something, a riddle or whatever, a parable that they can't understand. All of these are words of ridicule that God says that he and his people will one day give to these enemies. Now, even in that, does that bother us that God ridicules people? Well, remember, folks, what is God doing with this? What do we do when we ridicule and talk? We're trying to really, we're, it's revenge, and it's a way of maybe showing our superiority over that other person. But folks, with God, it's legitimate. He is superior to everyone else. 
and in taunting and help in realizing, making them realize their own foolishness. There's no sin involved in this. The taunting that God is talking about and the ridicule that he is giving will reveal the foolishness of his opponents with his words of divine wisdom. God will make an example. He will literally scoff at their spiritual foolishness and dullness, giving them riddles and things they can't understand. Reminds me of even what God did with poor old Job. Remember that? Giving him things that he couldn't understand. A riddle. Tell me this. Riddle me this, Job. And Job just said in the end, I get it. I humble myself. I'm not going to say anymore. And that will be the result of the end of this passage, by the way. God says that will be the response of the world. They will not have anything more to say. Because I will scoff and give, show them their dullness. Folks, we would all agree then that's right for God to do. And we as his people will do this along with them. The enemy will rule, rule the day that they arrogantly lifted their fist against God. But more specifically then, in, in verse 6, Woe to him who keeps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges, or the NASB says, makes himself rich with loans. Here is a description of the Babylonians or God's enemies, whoever they are, that heap upon, that have victory after victory. You had the Assyrians this way, you would have the Babylonians, then the Persians, you had the Egyptians, you would have eventually the Romans, and all of these would be very victorious. They would be tools that God would use to teach his people things but they would not last forever. They would be victorious and heap up many things that were not their own. They would take things. And it's interesting for how long you can still see that God understands that for his people, this is hard to endure. And he under, God understands us better than we understand. And God says, I know that from your perspective, you think how long are these people going to continue in this extortion? Loads himself up with pledges that, Really, I like the NASB version of this. It helps us understand, makes himself rich with loans. See, um, and God is giving, I, I should back up here. He gives these woes. There are five woes that he gives here. Woe is actually an exclamation of amazement. Here to draw people's attention to something remarkable. You know how in our culture in the past, when some, something happens to someone or something really bad, like an accident or something, or somebody gets confronted right in front of everyone, and there's an awkwardness, sometimes people literally will say, whoa, that's actually a pretty good description of what's happening here. That, whoa, just wait. These wicked people think that they're in charge and, they're, and they are having success, but God says, you will say, whoa, they have no idea what's coming. Woe to them who heaps up what's not his own. These foes are taking from others through extortion tactics. And what they took, they think that they're just going to add to their collections. Remember that description? We take, we add to our collection, and we worship ourselves, and no one can say a thing. But God says, actually, in reality, they're just borrowing. I'm just allowing them to borrow, because actually it's all mine. And they're just borrowing. And with that borrowing, they're accruing heavy debt. And they will pay. And folks, they will pay with interest. And so I like that description. will make himself rich with loans. These 
arrogant people think they're taking for something for themselves for all time, and God says they're just borrowing. And one day they will pay with interest back. And the second part of these woes, then, as we go through them, is God telling them how they will be punished for their sin, the arrogant ones. Will not your debtors suddenly arise? Who are the debtors here? God, certainly, but it's also all the people that were taken from, God's people included. They will suddenly arise at one point, and those awake who will make you tremble. This arrogant enemy of the Babylonians was making everybody tremble and mocking at kings. And God says, Habakkuk, in my time, one day they will tremble. And the very victims of who they have harmed will make them tremble. Then you will be spoiled for them. You will be plundered, arrogant nation that worships yourself. Because you have plundered many nations. You've extorted many nations, taking things by force that weren't yours. All the remnants of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Yes, God will deal with their extortion tactics, and God will deal with their insatiable greed as he continues here. God makes it clear. Yes, he understands the things that these enemies have afflicted on people have been terrible and awful, but God says one day, they will be returned in kind, and it will be much worse for these enemies that do not recognize that I am sovereign and do not recognize me as Lord. They will have the same things happen to them that they did to others, and it will be even worse. So God will deal with their extortion, verses 9 through 11. God will deal with their insatiable greed. Remember, that's already been described in verse 5. They're greedy for more. They're never full. God says, I'll deal with that one day. So woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. Again, the greed is addressed here. These enemies are able to seize. God has allowed them the ability to seize whatever they want. And they've set it up high. The picture is of an eagle. If you've ever seen an eagle's nest, it's high above and you uh, in a tree or on a telephone post sometimes or different things, in the majesty, or even on a cliff. And the, the picture here is nobody's going to be able to touch that eagle. And the enemies of God are thinking the same thing. We have all the spoil, and we're never satisfied, but we have securely put it away. No one will be able to touch our stuff, so to speak. And God says, oh, no, I can touch your stuff. You think that you're safe from the reach of harm. You're deceiving yourselves. You've had an unfair advantage in the minds of these people. But I will bring justice and I will make all things fair. Here's what I'm going to do. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off or ruining many people's, uh, destroying, maybe even have the idea of, of almost genocide with some people. But in doing that, in your cruelty and your violence, you have actually forfeited your own life. And God's people understand that even though he may bring correction, like we talked about with David today, we still look forward to eternal life. But those that reject God will find <coughs> eternal death and punishment and ultimately will forfeit their lives because of their pride and arrogance. 
As much as we want to see justice, folks, justice will be terrible for these that have rejected God. We need to remember that too. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork will respond. The very things that you have created, the structures that you have created with wealth that's not yours because of your greed will testify, will cry out against you. And your guilt will be made plain, is what God says here. God will cause the victims of this powerful, arrogant foe to powerfully rise up and plunder them in return. And here's a woe. I thought this was a good reminder for even people today that reject God. Babylon's wealth flowed from the broken cities and broken lives of its neighbors. The first woe passages of warning or these woe passages are warnings to those who are powerful. Power should be used to bring positive results. Even our criminal justice system of almost any nation permits all kinds of oppressive acts. Simply because a matter is legal does not make the matter right before God. When power becomes a tool to take advantage of others, woe to you. We get frustrated by injustice today and even in our justice system where things aren't truly made right, and many times the wicked prosper. Folks, remember, even as we're frustrated by our own uh, lack of equality and righteousness in our country, there will come a day where God will make it all right and will balance it all out. We want to be on his side, and he will deal with these things. Well, God, the earth will know God's plans for the greedy foe, but the earth also will know God's plans for the violent foe. There's much violence that has taken place, and these next two woes um, are in regards to that. God, first of all, in contrast to the temporary power of the enemy, God will reveal the fullness of his eternal glory. And we see that in verses 12 through 13 through 14. Here's the third. Woe to him who builds a tower with blood and who founds a city on iniquity. This is the enemy's evil and violent nature that all of their energy and zeal they have put into slaughtering others and to, and to have conquest. God describes that he knows their crimes. They have built their success on iniquity, on sins, on the crimes of others. And again, we could, we could translate that to today. So many people that build a successful life on crime and the misery of others around the world. God says, I know. I see these things. And they are giving all this energy for nothing. They're wasting their energy. It will be for naught. And that is the response in verses 13 and 14. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts? Remember that beautiful description is the Lord of all armies. The Lord of all authorities. The Lord that is over all powerful entities he is still Lord of hosts, Habakkuk, and he will deal with these that have done such great and committed atrocities. I'm reading this uh, book about um, the things that happened to the Jews in not only um, Germany, but uh, Switzerland as well. And just reminded of the awfulness of the crimes against them. 
And God says, I see it all. They're not going to get away with these things. As evil as these things are, they will not accomplish their purposes. The Nazis didn't accomplish their, pers- their, their purposes in a general sense, right? And these nations will weary themselves. Look at verse 13. People labor merely for fire, and nations weary themselves for nothing. All this energy and zeal and these atrocities, and it'll come for naught. It'll be consumed in the fire. I think the ultimate ultimate fulfillment of that is these things will be consumed in eternal fire, right? For those that have rejected God. All of this effort, they think they're so successful, and they're wasting their lives. Even this um, conflict between Russia and Ukraine. I, I think, as a side note, it's kind of interesting how the media gets us all stirred up. Not to stay on this for too long. But when this first happened, you know, um, they're stirring up people against. And really, it really is hard to know in a lot of ways. We pray for Ukraine and we're concerned for them. And, and a lot of people are going through a lot of difficult things. But we don't know all that's going on over there. But I remember all the memes and everybody all worked up about the Ukraine and concern. And it's still going on. It's interesting now as I, I look at these stories. I'm like, isn't, isn't everybody still concerned about the, the war? Because I, you don't hear anything about it. It's like we're manipulated all the time. This is a side note, but it kind of irritates me. But this whole thing with Russia in Ukraine, uh, Russia is trying to seemingly um, boast of its power and maybe try to take over Ukraine and I think it, from what we can tell that, that Putin or the people in charge thought that it would be an easy thing, and they've been proven wrong. They're still using up a lot of their resources. And then you have the Ukraine who's fighting back and using up their resources. And you have this nation, this country, that thought that they would ha- be able to subjugate and be superior to another country and they're using up a lot of their resources, and it seems like their efforts at the moment are, are wasted, right? It's kind of a picture for, in the end, what's going to happen with these enemy nations that reject God. They're going to find that they've spent their whole lives in pursuing nothingness. Whole lives are wasted. Because God said, in the end, they will not. And then, folks, here is the hope of the whole chapter, and really the hope of the whole book. And I think that's why Habakkuk takes chapter 3 and just rejoices. It's a praise song. Lord, thank you for reminding me about who you are. Because God says here, Habakkuk, in the end, these enemy nations, the Babylonians, won't be remembered. They won't have eternal superiority. All will be subjugated, will be in submission to the reality of my glory. Verse 14, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters covers the sea. Everyone will know. No one, it will escape no one as the waters cover the seas. And, you know, and we can't even measure the water on our planet today, right? And God says it will be apparent to everyone. And no one will even remember those cruel nations that did these things, they'll all come for naught, and there will come a day where the whole earth will just be filled with my glory and knowledge of me. And this has the words of worship, that all will worship. But it's interesting, this word for knowledge is the word for a personal knowledge that you only have through relationship with God. And here Habakkuk points, look, folks, to our eternal hope. 
even though in a general sense, how will the whole world have a personal knowledge and relationship with God one day? Through the work of Jesus Christ, who had the most evil of all acts perpetrated against him. And God gave him victory, and he will provide us the ability through faith in him, through the work of the Holy Spirit, to understand God in a personal, full way that we could never, that the enemies of God could never experience. One day, folks, and God is pointing Habakkuk to this, and it, this will be eternal. All will recognize and be in relationship with God and recognize his superiority for all time. What a blessing when we're dealing with wicked, evil, obstinate, <clears throat> aggravating <clears throat> rulers and leaders in our country today. I, I'll just say this, and I just won't say anything further, but even this last week, a leader of our own country with a backdrop of red saying crazy things. Well, folks, that may fill the airwaves at the moment, but one day, praise the Lord, and just be filled with worship <laughs> that will be wonderful that's our hope but god's not done yet god will reveal the shame of their own glory he will bring them to shame as they have shamed others and the description here is very vivid be aware the enemy revels in drunkenness and shaming their foes and as it refers to wine here and drunkenness the babylonians were known for being drunk and raging in their drunkenness. Probably better, though, even more specific, that um, it's talking about filling their opponents with the cup of their wrath, with the wine of their wrath. So woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath, your cup of wrath, and you make them drunk in misery and shame in order to gaze at their nakedness. Here is a terrible picture of the enemy um, bringing wrath upon other people and mocking them in their misery. What an awful thing. That's hard for us to deal with. But God says it won't last forever. I will turn that around. And one day I will shame this arrogant, awful enemy, and they will experience this. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. You think that your glory will last forever, but I will turn your glory, your pathetic momentary glory into shame and embarrassment. Drink yourself. Enjoy temporarily the rewards of your cruelty. You drink, and you will drink one day the cup of my wrath, and you will be embarrassed. You will be literally made naked before the world. Show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you. And utter shame will come upon your glory. And then the description of violence. Again, God knows the extent of the enemies and what they've done to his people. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you. The very specific, there's a specific instance of cruelty and violence that these, these armies have done to a specific location. God knows. As well, the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities, in all who dwell in them, God recognizes that the enemy not only brings cruelty and destruction to people, but also to animals, even, and to the earth. And as frustrated folks as we are against the, uh, I guess you want to say in general, the environmental movement and some of the ways that they, uh, certainly they're godless reflections and, and emphasis. 
about all that man has to do to save the environment. Folks, there is an element of truth here that God is concerned for the world and how men treat it and how men treat animals and even the wild beasts and how we, remember how he gave Adam all the way back in Genesis the responsibility of taking care of the earth. God still expects us to do that. And one day, men will be judged for their lack of being able to do that effectively in their sin. To have brought destruction and violence to man, to animal, to the environment. God says, you will be shamed one day, and it will come upon your glory. God will deal fully with the enemy in sight of the whole earth. And they'll be paid back in full for their violence against mankind and against the world. God will shame them. Habakkuk's concerns are addressed then. Will this continue on forever? God says, no, their foolishness and their wickedness, I will in my timing make known over the whole world, and they will be mocked for rejecting me. Finally, the final woe. This is so foolish that the, that God delays his woe until verse 19 as he describes what the woe is for. The earth will know God's plan for the idolatrous foe, and God will reveal the foolishness of idolatry. Isn't false worship just plain foolish? Verse 18, what profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation. When he makes speechless idols, men trust in supposed power of images that they make themselves. Utter foolishness. God describes this here. They expect truth and guidance from an idol that can't even speak. Right? We understand the ridiculousness of this. God is making this clear. And so this final woe is spoken against those who would take the time with metal or wood to craft an idol and then sit it down and say, what do you want me to do? And God says, whoa, to the person who would do that. Utter foolishness has not life, has not breath. You, re you rejected me, the author of life and breath, and are putting all your trust in an empty idol. Verse 19, woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, and to a silent stone, arise, help me, give me guidance. Can this teach? Can this teach you what to do? Can this give you guidance? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver. You make it look beautiful as you craft it. And yet there's no life at all in it. Now we understand, I hope, the foolishness of that. I don't think any of you, I hope not, uh, have um, fashioned your own idol and have it on your mantelpiece and are bowing down to it every day, I would expect that that's not a temptation here in this world, in our midst today, I would hope. But, folks, don't we have our own idols that aren't made? But, well, maybe they are made with stone or wood. What things do we allow into our lives that are more important to us at times than God? Whatever they are, they're idols. And they can't give full sustenance. They can't provide us what we need. We had some wonderful times with the boys growing up, and they're very creative, and they enjoyed stuffed animals. 
They still do to a certain extent, but we'll just leave it. Uh, they were actually, and, and, and Leslie um, encouraged this, but they, in their creativity, they would at times even, I'm not sure what the, how this started, but they would write plays from the oldest on down, and um, they would then carry out these plays with their stuffed animals, and I would video them, and you probably have seen kids do this, but you know, it, was, it was fun. They would take their little stuffed animals, and they had different things in it, in a whole scenario in drama, and they would make this stuffed animal talk, and then you didn't have this one kind of walk into the picture, and then have this one talk, and you know, it was cute, and you know, I I suppose I'm not allowed to show those videos, right guys? <laughs> we'll talk about that later. They are really, they're, they're funny to watch. But the creativity, but even, even with the boys doing that, there was an understanding and kind of even on their faces as we were videoing that look of, Dad, this is all silly because we know they can't talk. They're not real. I think that you guys understood that, right? <laughs> Stuffed animals weren't real? Okay. They were very creative with this. And the different adventures that they would have and all of these things, and it was fun. But there was an understanding, even with children, that this is all make-believe. Well, folks, isn't it um, ridiculous and shaming for adults to worship things like this in the same venue and act like they're real. That's really all they're doing is play acting and they're acting and putting their dependence on these things. And again, we would say, oh, idols, I don't worship idols. But there are other things. Do we worship sports? Do we worship entertainment? Do we worship possessions? Whatever tendency, whatever things in our lives tend to be more important at times in our relationship with God is no better than that idol framed in gold, wooden, stone, plain stuffed animal games. Shaming. Because we're not recognizing God's work in our lives and our need for to depend on Him. Folks, we all tend to depend on things other than God, and those are our idols. God says, one day I will make all this plain, and we as his people certainly don't want to get caught in idol worship of our own making. We want to depend and trust God, because God will deal with this. He'll reveal the foolishness of their idolatry and our idolatry one day, and he will also reveal the fullness of his holiness. This last verse, the Lord is in his holy temple. That's his heavenly temple. That means that he's in control of everything, that he sees everything. And that Habakkuk, don't you worry, he is holy. He notices evil, and he will deal with that evil one day. And in that time, one day, the whole earth will keep silent. They will have nothing to say. The whole world, folks, will literally be speechless as we stare and we look upon this holy one, and certainly in the New Testament realm, of the holiness of Jesus Christ. And we will be in awe, and we will understand. And those enemies that have wasted their whole lives in cruelty and envy and greed and extortion and all of these things, idol worship, they will in fear tremble because they chose the wrong way. And they won't have anything to say either. But as we end, let us be reminded, folks, as Habakkuk is reminded and encouraged, that not, don't get discouraged. 
don't get frustrated or um, or fearful. But remember what God says here, that he will come and deal with all things at some point. So wait on him. Abide in Christ and proclaim to a world that needs to hear that judgment is coming and evil will be dealt with and people need to be in right relationship with the judge of the world, of the universe, that is Jesus Christ, in order to have eternal life with him forever. Don't fear, but trust and obey. Father, what a picture we have here. It is comforting to be reminded that evil will not reign, that it will not be ultimately successful. But it's also sobering in the realizing that so many will be shamed and so many will face eternal judgment because they rejected you as their king. Lord, that day we look forward to, we look forward to worshiping you in silence and in joy and in singing and all these things. But there will be a sobering reality that many will bow the knee that will be destined for eternal judgment. So in this, in the midst of our frustration and anger with evil and wickedness and cruelty, help us to proclaim Christ. Proclaim the fact that anyone, dictator, criminal, sinner, can repent and trust Christ and be renewed and follow him. Help us to remember that and proclaim it, for it's in Jesus' name we pray.